Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Gentlemen, thank you both for joining us. Uh, we've got Dr. Tim Brown, a plastic surgeon from down in Melbourne, and we've got Nero from uh, well Do- from podcast Do- episode five. Dr. Nero. Dr. Nero, beg your pardon. Or is it Professor now, Nero? I can't keep up with all your accolades. <laughs> And uh, yeah, Nero is a cosmetic surgeon uh, based in Sydney, but I think you also do some work um, interstate. Is that right, Nero? That's quite correct. I've got um, clinics coast to coast um, and there's always a provision of teaching and leadership as well as a key opinion leader. So yep. it's pretty much pan Australia, but primarily in New South Wales. So I guess um, we should preface this yes. this podcast a little bit because uh, there'll be listeners abroad who might be thinking, well, what's this all about? Um, you know, there was a, a TV show on on national Australian TV, what, two weeks ago now? Yeah, two, week, two weeks ago on Four Corners, which yeah. is a, a fairly hard-hitting and reputable um, news production here in Australia. Yeah, like a documentary type kind of program. Of, yeah. yep. And, you know, we're not here to, to point fingers or name names, but the, the premise was that some plastic surgeons um, sort of got together and had some concerns about a, a group of um, surgeons that we in Australia call cosmetic surgeons. And maybe you guys could first introduce yourselves in your own backgrounds and then we can sort of get into, you know, a bit more detail about what, what the controversy is. So maybe we'll start with Tim, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Um, I suppose I'm a, a UK trained plastic surgeon. So I, I went through my training in the UK in plastic surgery in the 1990s. Uh, and that, that, at that time, it included, included a fair amount of uh, cosmetic surgery. Um, I was a consultant in the UK in Sheffield and then moved to Auckland in the early 2000s as uh, as professor, mainly doing burn care. Uh, after two years, I decided that Auckland wasn't the place for me. So uh, I didn't like the weather, really. That's it was too it English for to. you. <laughs> it was like Derby without the charm in, in those days. <laughs> and, and so uh, I, uh, I moved to Australia um, I, I'd been given my Australian surgical fellowship by election, so I could practice in Australia. And um, I've been in practice here for nearly 20 years, I suppose, 18 years, something like that. Right. And my, my practice now is is 90, 95% cosmetic, I suppose. Right. And you're also um, so not only a qualified plastic surgeon, but um, you're also a fellow of the Australian um, College of Cosmetic Surgeons, known as the ACCS. Yeah, that, that's right. And, and what was your reason for someone that's already got plastics training? And forgive me if this is a you know an obtuse question or maybe you know obvious. But what was your reason for wanting to go and study with the ACCS if you'd already undertaken all of that training as a plastic surgeon? Well, I don't think it was so much about studying because I, I mean, I only joined that group I suppose two years ago. I think it's more about 
wanting to develop cosmetic surgery as a separate specialty. Right. And my, my belief that it is a separate specialty and there are many avenues through which people can get that training. And I, and I, I'm, I'm happy to work with anybody who wants to really achieve that aim, whether it's plastics or cosmetic surgery or whoever, whichever political group, I don't really mind. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe just to, for the listeners benefit because we sort of know about these colleges but traditionally or my understanding and maybe Nero can sort of explain the the ACCS or the Australian College of Cosmetic Surgery tends to be um, attended and and the fellows who sort of go through that college are not plastic surgeons is that right Nero? Um, So essentially there are two arms there there's the medical arm and there's the surgical arm Um, within the surgical cohort the majority are not plastic surgeons. There are a number who are plastic surgically trained and who are also qualified specialist plastic surgeons, whether in Australia or foreign jurisdictions such as the UK or, you know, examples like the UK. Um, but yes, yeah, so really what ACCSM has done is to bring people together who may have skill sets from, say, general surgery, maxillofacial surgery, ENT or, you know, many, many call themselves as facial plastic surgeons, bring everyone together. And the common thread is people having an interest or a passion for cosmetic surgery. Mm-hmm. And exactly as, um, you know, Tim alluded, um, all around the world, cosmetic surgery is slowly um, establishing itself as its own specialty. And we take a lot of um, skills that are transferable, soft tissue handling, you know, um, sick patients, so on and so forth. And Jake, obviously, you have a background in uh, general surgery from the UK. So, you know, uh, dealing with patients who are unwell, the CRISP courses, so on and so forth. The more breadth and depth one has, the better they are as a surgeon. So I guess what ACCSM is trying to do is be apolitical or avoid the politics and just bring everyone together and then um, with a common thread of cosmetic surgery. Yeah, fair enough. And, and sorry, Neil, we, we didn't. We sort of skipped straight to a question to you without giving you an opportunity to properly um, introduce yourself. Even though we've had you on the podcast before, very very early on um, in the podcast days, do you want to just give um, us a little bit of a, a flavour for sort of your background? Well, thank you for having me back again. Um, I, I trained in plastic surgery in the UK for about four years. I was a MaxFax uh, fellow as well. I've been in general surgery like you, Jake. Um, And then after moving to Australia, I undertook two years with ACCSM in cosmetic surgery and then another two-year fellowship where uh, the two main threads were male genital enhancement and total body lifting. So uh, I've got a reasonably broad uh, base of surgical experience. And just to sort of complete your sort of CV, as it were, you also did some time or qualifications with the American Cosmetic College of Surgery. Is that right? Absolutely. And I sit on the board there as well. So, um, yeah, I, I spent some time both in France and the USA. Fair enough. Now, maybe, you know, for the average listener who's thinking, well, plastic surgery, cosmetic surgery, it's all the same, isn't it? Tim, do you, do you just want to sort of talk us super briefly through what it means to be a plastic surgeon? And then maybe we'll let Nero sort of, you know, talk about what a cos- cosmetic surgeon is. Sure. Well, plastic surgery really is a is a specialty of techniques rather than a, a specialty of parts. So um, it, it, it's really um, using different methods to sort out soft tissue problems so it's applied to hand surgery to cleft lip and palate surgery to big holes in the body that are either created surgically or through trauma Um, it's about recreating function and form and with that a lot of that um, has an aesthetic component 
to it. Um, having said that, the way that it's trained uh, or taught is predominantly uh, through the public health care system, which is predominantly um, the reconstructive side of plastic surgery. Uh, cosmetic surgery isn't isn't quite the same, really. And there is, a, there is a great overlap. Let's be quite clear about that. There is a great overlap. Uh, cosmetic surgery is about perfectly fit, healthy people who've got something that they want to change about their appearance uh, to enhance it, to change it, to alter it, uh, to fit more into their sort of vision of themselves and what they would like to be. Uh, so I think that's the, that's in a nutshell how I describe the difference. There, there is some overlap, but the two things are 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 different. And, and just to be clear, so you know, my understanding I've done plastics and, and Nero's done plastics, but you know, I didn't mm. finish my training. You you, you you know, you said that in the public system, you don't get exposed to you know the common things in cosmetics such as facelifts, blepharoplasties, breast augmentation without cancer. So all of these things that a plastic surgeon might experience in the public system, up until maybe they choose to do a fellowship, they have little, if not no, experience of. Is that correct? I think I think that's correct to a certain degree. For example, if you're doing um, taking a tumor out of a parotid salivary gland, for example, you're going to learn how to um, open up a face in the same way as you would for a facelift incision. But it it doesn't, uh, and that's a good start. But it doesn't really take the thing right the way through. Similarly, if you're doing breast reconstruction using an implant um, following a mastectomy, it doesn't necessarily teach you how a an implant will behave in a breast that hasn't had surgery on it or hasn't had the tissue excised or has had radiotherapy on it. So there are, there's an extension that isn't there. Yeah. Yeah. And Nero, maybe you can just, as, as sort of Jake alluded to, just give us a breakdown of what, what a cosmetic surgeon do, uh, is and, and what it is that they actually do and I guess day-to-day practice and sort of what skills are required to make a successful or a competent and safe cosmetic surgeon. Well, I think I could answer that and also extend what Tim said with the following commentary. Cosmetic surgery has a very significant component uh, involving psychology, patient psychology, expectations, and especially with regard to expectation delivery mismatch. So, for example, if one were to undertake a procedure involving the excision of a tumour, then the patient is generally grateful, even if they have scars and perhaps they've got complications, et cetera, et cetera, they've got to go back to theatre. In cosmetic surgery, that degree of leeway just doesn't happen. So not only is there the financial component, and one has to very carefully you know, scrutinise whether the patient is appropriate for the procedure, not just surgically, but psychologically, financially, emotionally, and even temporally. One of the questions I always ask is, especially, say, before a radical abdominoplasty, do you have enough time and support so that you can recover safely and appropriately at home? So I, I, I guess that's, what, you know, as, a, as an extension to what Tim said about some of the differences. Yes, there's an overlap, but there are also some very distinct facets when dealing with healthy patients who wish to look better and are going down uh, an elective endeavour. In terms of what cosmetic surgery encompasses on a day-to-day basis, um, a lot of uh, people in cosmetic surgery do uh, have, I suppose, niche operations or preferred operations. Um, For example, my my preferences uh, relate to total body lifting, especially tummy tucks. Um, Some people would love to, you know, um, focus on breast augmentation or 
breast lifts. Um, of course, many of us do a lot of other procedures as well. Um, I, I guess, for example, in my own schedule, on a weekly basis, I would see patients coming in for both non-surgical uh, interventions, so um, antivincle injections, uh, dermal fillers, um, skin tightening, perhaps skin resurfacing, and then also, for example, liposuction or <clears throat> um, a facelift and that kind of thing. So it can be very varied indeed. And as with everything in medicine, it's also what you make of it. I do a little bit of medical legal work, and you know that's uh, something that I found has really um, given me both a good grasp of the industry, uh, but also about some of the contem contemporaneous issues and breaches around the country. Uh, and, you know, I can therefore modify my practice accordingly. So I think a lot of cosmetic surgeons generally have a fair, fairly varied schedule. Yeah. Thank you for that explanation. And, and maybe I'll just sort of um, preface the next part of our conversation in giving people a basic understanding of um, what's going on in, in the Australian, uh, I guess, in this industry within Australia, um, particularly for overseas guests. So we've got the plastic surgeons and we've got the cosmetic surgeons and unfortunately and you know all my friends who are both plastic and cosmetic surgeons forgive me if I sort of if I sort of explain this in a way that offends one particular group or another and I'll try and be as impartial as I, as I possibly can is that you've got these two almost warring factions um, of, of, of doctors so plastic and cosmetic surgeons um, basically fighting for, I guess, public approval or government um, support to be the group of doctors that are allowed or have the right or control over cosmetic surgery. Would that, would that be a fair assessment, assessment do you think? I, I think um, both craft groups um, have agreed that pretty much, you know, protecting the public is the focus here. Yep. Um, how it's being affected, however, is where there is some dispute. If I can sort of add, because you know I've only been in the country six years, and my understanding, and and tell me if I'm wrong, because you've both gone through the Australian College of Cosmetic Surgery, is that the basic qualification or requirement to join that college and do a fellowship of some description is simply a medical degree. That, that there isn't, you know, Nero, you did say that they might take plastics or, or general surgical trainees or whoever, but you could have GPs or, or I guess, medical doctors who decide I want to have a, a go at doing cosmetic surgery. Is that right? Or have I got that wrong? That's not quite right. Uh, maybe I can answer. I'm on the board of censors of that college, so okay. the College of Cosmetic Surgeons. Um, I think uh, they have to have a minimum of five years of surgical experience before okay. they're before they're allowed to apply to undertake the two-year surgical fellowship. So um, they need to have some surgical experience, uh, and I, I think really a lot of the arguments boil down to to two things. Firstly. Is that surgical experience enough for them to undertake a fellowship? That's the first thing that everybody's arguing about. And secondly, is the contents of that fellowship adequate? Yeah, thanks for clearing that up because, you know, a lot of stuff that I just hear anecdotally, you know, I might get DMs or people just overhear people saying, oh, they'd take anyone. <laughs> so thank you for clearing up that rumour that it's clearly not true. Yeah. And and I did look up the American um, College of Cosmetic Surgery sort of a run through, if you like, and Nero, you did that. It seems similar. You have to have completed your residency, which is, you know, three to five years, and then they'll allow you. But you can't just sort of turn up as a medical student or a first year doctor and say, I want to do, you know, boob jobs. That's just not, you know, obviously that's ridiculous, but I think some people think that that's possible. 
Um, so with the American equivalent, one has to have been uh, board certified in a base surgical specialty mm-hmm. prior to then being uh, eligible to uh, join the American college. So um, they would have completed their training in whether plastic surgery or ENT or general surgery, and then they can attend. Right. And in terms of um, the experience that um, doctors have to have in terms of surgical training, is there any is there any surgical discipline that um, is suitable or is acceptable to, to the ACCS? And then how do you sort of ascertain if someone hasn't completed a surgical training program, how do you then assess the competence of that surgeon? Because I would assume that f- completing a surgical specialty would be you know, you're being able to say, I've passed, I've passed the exams, I'm competent, here's my qualification, you know, I'm, I've passed, a, you know, a basic set of standards. So how do you do that if you've got people coming to the college that haven't completed a surgical specialty, that haven't gone through the examination process? Because you could have three years of experience, but be, but be total crap and unsafe. So I'm, just, I'm not doing this to be um, argumentative. I'm just doing this because I want to make sure that we're thorough and we're asking the questions that might people might be thinking. So please don't take this as me being adversarial. It's just trying to be thorough. I think that's I think that's a very valid point. It's a very difficult problem, um, and uh, you're right. If somebody hasn't taken an exit exam with with a defined standard, it's very difficult to ascertain whether they're suitable to go on to the next stage. And 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 this is really the crux of the issue as well. I mean, uh, between plastic surgery and and cosmetic surgery, in the sense that they're um, one the one group, the plastic surgeons, insist that the exit exam of the Royal College of Surgeons is adequate and contains enough cosmetic surgery training, whereas uh, the cosmetic surgery group thinks that's not the case. Um, but you're you're quite right. I think, as in with any organisations at present time, it's not perfect, and um, you're you're going to find that there are people who are entering the scheme who are not um, who are not up to it. And hopefully, during a two-year fellowship, they get weeded out. So, so what does a fellowship look like with with the ACCS? And maybe you could sort of reflect what you might have done on a fellowship when you finished your plastics training and you decided to subspecialize in something. One thing that I wanted to add to what Tim said was that Rax um, confirmed in writing this year that they don't provide cosmetic training and they don't credential in cosmetic surgery. So, I think that's where ACCSM is really trying to. Uh, take some leadership here and say, look, we all want to protect patients and we want to have a register where obviously there are different groups, ACCSM doctors, RACS doctors, et cetera, et cetera. And really what they're trying, I, I believe they can work together and try and weed out those whom are exactly as Jake said, perhaps GPs with a weekend course who can now do whatever they want. Um, and, you know, there are examples of people who are interns and 2017 who are now doing facelifts and that kind of thing which is absolutely it it, it beggars belief that you know i think and tim you would agree in the uk everyone is beaten down and said you're rubbish you're rubbish you're rubbish and there is a very different mindset um but to to be out of med school and then within three years start to jump in and do facelifts and so on i i think it's, it's got balls of steel to be honest but yeah and I, th- I think it's a point sort of uh, worth making before we uh, go back to you, Tim, was that um, I guess for people that are listening that are not medical, they're not nurses, they might just be you know, a potential patient listening to this, any doctor that finishes their medical qualification that holds the qualification of MBBS can go out tomorrow and do basically any procedure on anyone they like if they find a patient willing to allow them to do that. And as long as they're in 
I guess, a credentialed facility. Is that is that right? And I mean, if that is right, I mean, that's the that is the the part that probably is more scary than whether someone's from the ACCS or whether they're a plastic surgeon. You've got people with no surgical training whatsoever yeah. Um, yeah. who can go and do whatever they want if they can convince people that they're competent. I think that's right. I mean, I think part of it is the uh, the basic medical medical qualification is MBBS, which is Bachelor of Surgery, which kind of um, lets people think you've got some experience in um, in surgery, uh, which patently isn't true. Uh, again, it's um, I suppose about um, I spe- my, I finished my training as I said in the in the late nineteen nineties, so I'm, I'm nearer to the end than I am to the beginning. Um, <laughs> But uh, certainly, um, how can I put it? Uh, about 20 years ago, when I was uh, working in burn care, I, I, we were setting up a national burn service in New Zealand. I wrote an editorial for the journal Burns called, If It Can't Be Measured, It Can't Be Managed. And I, I think the basic problem at the moment is there's no measures for cosmetic surgery. There's no defined standard. If there's no defined standard, you can't measure where people sit on that standard so you can't say you are competent to do a facelift because that competency hasn't been defined and that may be defined in terms of what training you need the number of cases you need to do the amount of continuation training you need to get auditing of your results all of that stuff hasn't been defined for anything in cosmetic surgery and until you've actually got that and measured it people are really just waffling in the wind as far as i'm concerned and I guess that argument goes for cosmetic injectables. We we had a panel discussion, I yeah. don't know, three or four months ago. We had some key opinion leaders and, you know, I came up with a loose idea of, well, maybe we should have a, a logbook, an injectable logbook to prove competency. You know, I've done X amount of temples a year or tear troughs or whatever. And it was kind of loosely thought of a good idea, but not practical. But I mean, for something like surgery, you would assume, you know, when we have things like breast implant registries and you know um you've got to be on an accredited premises and all the rest of it that surely uh you'd have to have a logbook of your facelifts and 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 so on and you know even for a plastic surgeon forget a cosmetic surgeon if you were only doing three a year maybe there should be some alarm bells at the end of the year where you go "Hmm, maybe i shouldn't be doing this uh or or retrain or do another fellowship or something because you know we'll have to prove our competence at the end of the way somehow but you know, it's like an airline pilot who only flies once a year and then you're saying it's fine to fly a 747. You just wouldn't do that. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. There's something to be said for that. But I mean, also, um, it depends what what type of surgery you're doing. I mean, certainly I do, I do a lot of breast augmentation. I've published a huge amount on breast augmentation. But um, if you look at the number of breast implants I do, probably 70% of them are revision breast implants that have come from elsewhere. Yeah. So on the basis of that, if you were saying counting pure numbers, you may say, well, I'm not doing enough every year yeah. to be doing first time round breast implants, which obviously is, is nonsensical. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and it's not just numbers. That's the important thing. It's quality yeah. and, with, and, and it's quality of outcome. Uh, but again, those outcome measures are not just of complications, they're of satisfaction. Um, so it, there's a, a certain degree of maybe a 360 reflection needs to be involved there, uh, a degree of audit, um, and a degree of defining standards. Yeah. But none of those have been done in cosmetic surgery. 
but but do you think the appetite is there both from the plastic fraternity and and cosmetic do you think that you know we keep on hearing and, and Nero alluded to it that you know that the, the number one thing is patient safety and we hear it trotted out again and again and again and yet when you see things like what we saw on tv of course there was an element of patient safety but there was just an element of smearing and just sort of i don't know it was i mean it, it was shocking what we saw or some of it was shocking and, and some of it was completely legit but there was a bit of a sort of a, a tabloidy sort of angle to it as well and and you know these things happen again and again where something rears its head and it's plastics versus cosmetics or vice versa and it doesn't always seem to be that patient safety is the driving force but may, maybe we're wrong maybe that's just had the perception uh, i think whenever there's a power play there's always a, a mixed agenda isn't there mm. um, yeah and part of that's financial part of it's about controlling the turf part of it is about patient safety and you know if somebody's saying they have a pure single agenda uh i think they're being a bit disingenuous yeah um and Nira, maybe you can speak to, to this sort of point it's not really a question more than a statement that i'd like your comment on i feel that um when i listen to you know friends of mine that are plastic surgeons um people that i've sort of become quite close to over the years and i, and I, I sort of hear their side of the story which is they've undergone all this training you know many of them have gone and done general surgery for a number of years trying to get into a plastics program they finally you know manage to get the right people on side because it's a very competitive specialty to get accepted onto and they all of a sudden they go on their program so they come out you know probably close to 40 years of age they've been through the medical system they've done general surgery and plastics and they come out and they're like, right, I'm going to start my career in cosmetic surgery now. I've got all these skills and training behind me. And then all of a sudden, Dr. XYZ opens up around the corner, who's done two years of general surgery, gone and done two years of ACS, comes out and is sort of purporting to sort of be able to offer similar results, charging a similar price. So I guess I can understand, I wouldn't even call it professional jealousy. I'd call it almost feeling like you've been hard done by, that you've been through all this rigorous training and ass kissing and putting up with shit from your consultants and all this, the horror stories that you hear from people that go through these training programs. You sort of empathise to a certain extent why they might be a little bit upset. And it, I guess it's, it, you know, your, your point is it's not always about the skill set. It's about, well, I've been through all of this, you know, this strenuous training to get to this point. And now someone's wrapping up around the corner who's going to usurp me or try and position themselves as being just as qualified or just as skilled. And I think that that may be part of it. I mean, do you want, can you comment on that or, or sort of give any insights? I absolutely agree with you because as I mentioned earlier, the more experience one has both depth and breadth, the better you are as a surgeon or as a doctor. And indeed this can be translated to anything, you know, even as a builder or something like that. Um, but, you know, perhaps could I throw a curveball into this and say, sure. maybe if we had a more efficient and fair regulator as well, then there might be a little bit less of a cleanup that needs to be done. I'll give you an example. Um, there are three things that have been flagged up with ARPRA this year that I'm wholly aware of and involved with, actually. And there was nothing that was done until the Four Corners program went to air. And all of a sudden, ARPRA's jumped into action. Now, And just to flag, so ARPRA is the Australian regulator of doctors, so for people listening. Uh, yeah. it's, it's the equivalent of, for example, the GMC in the UK. Yeah. What ARPRA's done, um, and I should also point out, ARPRA is a private body just as RACS is and ACCSM, in contrast to the British Royal College of Surgeons of England, which has a parliamentary charter. Um, but basically, ARPA's lack of timely activity then causes aggrieved patients to turn to ambulance chasing no-win, no-fee lawyers. 
Hmm. And the whole thing gets politicized even further. And, you know, for example, there was a recent interview on 2GB where a woman rang rang in having seen the Four Corners program. And that then made her question the work that somebody had had, you know, somebody had done to her. And then, of course, the the, the no win, no fee lawyer was jumping in trying to spook more business and so on. And ultimately, it, everyone loses out, apart from the lawyer. The doctors lose out in all the camps. Patients lose out. Insurance premiums go up. That drives patients overseas. And then, again, that opens another can of worms. So it, it is really multifactorial. Um, the human element, emotion, frustration, it, it, it all comes into it. But I would actually submit that a lack of harmony and arguably a lack of efficient regulation, which is what ACCSM has been pushing for for the last 20 odd years, is heavily contributing to, to this problem here in Australia. Yeah. Well, it seems like it's a lack of resources, doesn't it, Nero? I mean, you think about all the politicians and the highly paid politicians flying on private jets and business class everywhere and getting subsidies on their careers when they finish their time in office, you know, all the money that they're throwing, you know, directly and indirectly. Um, you sort of think, well, why aren't we putting more money into the regulators? They're putting their effort into the easy wins, like police out there getting people going 5Ks over the limits, but it seems like they're reticent to undertake the hard stuff that needs to be done because it's difficult and it's time consuming and it's expensive. Would you, would you agree with that? Um, Tim? I think, well, APRA haven't got any regulatory um, mandate for regulating cosmetic surgery because it isn't a recognized specialty. Mm -hmm. And that is a problem. But um, until the, um, the people undertaking this type of work get together and develop a sense of harmony with this sense of collegiality, define what the standards are, define how they're going to uh, make sure people have achieved those standards by whatever pathway. Um, it can't be regulated. It, it can't until you've worked out how you can measure it, you can't manage it. So opera are an enforcement body, but until they've got something to enforce, they can't enforce it. They can do for individual practitioners and individual cases, but they can't for groups. Yeah, and, and my understanding is that, you know, opera won't go out on a sort of a witch hunt proactively looking for trouble. They sort of act on, a, like you said, an individual basis. If a patient contacts them mm. and says, look, someone or a competitor, me out. Or a competitor dobs them in. Or, or, or a competitor <laughs> dobs them in, that's true. <laughs> I, I would imagine that 98% of the calls they get are, are, are from that route, to be honest, but I don't want to say it. Yeah. But, um, you know, but, but, you know, they're not like going to proactively look for anything. They, they, they sort of um, wait for the complaints. That's my understanding. Well, I guess that goes to Nero's point, which is that, you know, they don't act really until it reaches a crisis TV. point where they're embarrassed on national television for not doing anything. And then they, and then they, and then they move into gear. But actually, you know, if, if you follow their sort of protocol to the letter, no one complained. It was just a TV show. And yeah. so I don't, it doesn't really make sense, although they should do why they stepped in at that point. Yeah. What do you, what do you think, Nero? Um, I was going to say it's, it's perhaps not our pro. It might be more of a uh, systemic issue as well. For example, last year during COVID, uh, when there was specific cessation of elective operations, there were two surgeons who were undertaking purely elective procedures. They 
miscoding them as emergency trauma cases, trauma, et cetera, et cetera, knowingly. They were getting the theatre teams in to come in at night times. Theatre teams were flagging up concerns. They were very unhappy. The CEO of the hospital was notified, but he completely turned a blind eye and didn't even respond to the concerns about these two surgeons purposefully and knowingly miscoding in order to undertake solely elective cosmetic procedures by saying they were emergency plastic or recon procedures because it was all about generating money. Right. Do you want to tell us who those doctors were? No one's listening. I'll tell you. Oh, look, we had the same with injectables during both lockdowns. And, you know, it's just so... People that cry foul play about patient safety who then break the rules when it suits their bank account. I've seen it. Yeah. There is a distinction here, Jake. The, the people who were doing the injectables weren't pretending that it was skin cancer or, you oh, know. Oh, they were, because I've got the evidence, but I won't say it. <laughs> okay. Okay. okay, we have a bigger issue then. <laughs> yeah. um, for the, you know, if there's any lay people listening thinking, bloody hell, this seems pretty crazy. How would they go about sort of looking at someone's accreditation? You know, they turn up at someone's offices uh, and, and they just sort of want to know, well, who are you? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, what, you know, what, what do they ask and, and, and what do you tell them? Because, you, you know, you're not plastics, Nero. So the first thing is you've got to, um, I, th- I think the relationship here is more than just which camp one's in what qualifications one necessarily has. It is about um, the patient having confidence in the team that they're they're entrusting their body with. So, of course, you have to explain what your capability is, what your experience is. Um, And, and of course, I think the quality of the interchange is actually the consultation. Mm. You know, for example, I spend an hour, typically, if not longer, uh, going through all sorts of things and um, I, I think that engenders confidence. And, you know, as we know, just because you may have a label, it doesn't necessarily make you better or worse, um, but which is both for and against, you know, whichever group one's in. Yeah. Um, but, but of course, you know, marketing is a powerful and dangerous thing. And I, I, I always talk about deviance and social media, but, you know, there are a lot of doctors who essentially showcase softcore porn, you know, patients in, showers saying oh look at how watertight my uh, breast augmentation surgery is and literally the woman's got nothing on or you know there are lots of doctors who also a lot of physicians who doctor and um you know photoshop images for example thread lifts and where where they've stolen images from somebody else and then pass it off as their own and pass it off as not surgical um so i suppose perhaps my question would be you know, there should be more about how doctors are doing the right things by patients, advancing medical education, commitment to their craft, perhaps less about dancing in clinics, you know, dancing in operating theatres, etc. I mean, you see a lot of tomfoolery on social media. And I think p- patients are getting more astute to this now as well uh, and more aware of how social media is, is potentially a way of just hoodwinking people and may not reflect what actually is the value added by that clinician or that team. Tim, Tim, what are your thoughts? I think it's one further back from that. I think it's the doctors need to know whether they're any good or not to start with. 
And I think that's more of a fundamental problem. I mean, as you say, anybody can uh, market themselves or produce a front or a list of post-nominal letters or whatever. Uh, but the doctors themselves don't know if they're any good because they've not got a standard against which to compare themselves. And we're talking about two things here, I think, Nero. I think one is a basic safety standard and the other is a standard of excellence. And um, I think they are two different things. I mean, what, there should be a bare minimum standard for any any anything, but then you're going to have people who excel. Um, defining how one differs from the other is very, very difficult. But I think the one thing you can define is the bare basic minimum standard. But at the present, doctors don't know whether they fulfill that and I, and that's true i think for many branches of medicine because um if you if you don't have any sort of regulation to it you you can't actually measure that um so for example you may say i do three thousand breast implants in a year well what are your what are your follow-up rates what's your instance of capture contraction what's your return to theater what's your reoperation rate what's your patient satisfaction rates unless you've got that data or some data um, which you can landmark yourself against uh, your colleagues. You don't know whether you're doing a good job or not. So whilst it is important to ensure that the patients know if they're getting someone who's any good, it's also important that the doctors know if they are any good. I, I can't remember the specifics, but I remember in the UK, you know, when I was training, there, there was word that the government might sort of produce some sort of league table, if you like, of, you know, surgeons, complications rates and so on. And, mm. you know, it, it, it's so difficult to really do because like you said some surgeons specialize in revisions and, and higher risk surgery and all your readers are oh, that surgeon's crap because he's got a high infection rate and a back to theater rate whereas actually he's a tertiary referral surgeon taking on the nightmare cases sure. and that's going to happen so I, I don't know how you do it but but can you see a time where they might do something like that i think it's um i think it would be important to um in addition to having um a list of just the numbers you do, having some sort of of, of rider on what that what what the quality of the work is. That's where the difficulty lies. Yeah, that, that, and and you're quite right. That what you pointed out in the UK is exactly right. You'll find surgeons who only took on sort of real no hope of cases, and it was that or nothing. Hmm. And they they ended up with a high mortality rate, but at least they had a go. And um, so they they come out not looking quite so good. But with with um, with cosmetic surgery, I suppose I'm talking about the safety end, the bottom line, if you like. Um, so the numbers you're doing is a good start, but we really need to have some sort of quality control about it because yeah. these are not people who are sick to start with. We were just sort of talking off air, but I, I thought it'd be good to sort of talk about this on air you know you've got cosmetic surgeons or plastic surgeons they could be working for 20 30 years and like you said there's there's no sort of data points that the public or even maybe themselves know about so mm. how do you how do you know if someone is a, a, a bad or, or a reputable surgeon i mean should we just all be doing this through word of mouth and google reviews i mean is that as good as it gets or you know how I, do you add i think you've pinned down the basic problem with all types of medicine, uh, you, you don't. I mean, when I when I eventually need my hip replacement in a couple of years' time, um, I'll be asking the theatre sister or yeah. the physiotherapist, um, and I'm I'm blessed that I can actually do that. But I I, I agree, it's an it's an enormous problem. And uh, if my partner ends up having a uh, a health issue, I'll ask around colleagues in the in the um, 
in who are in the industry but it, it's really really difficult because that that line is very blurred between marketing and presentation mm. and actual and actual substance mm. uh, and Nero what do you think I, I don't find, think there's an easy answer I, I don't believe there's an easy answer at all and I was actually thinking when uh, Jake at the league tables in the UK um, I think a couple of years ago one of the American presidents needed some heart surgery and they, this president didn't actually go to the highest rated cardiothoracic surgeon. In fact, went to the cardiothoracic surgeon who takes on riskier operations, who was lower down in the league tables. Um, I think equally, however, with something that is more elective, oh gosh, it's, it's a tough one because you're also throwing in patient expectations as well. And there is no way of capturing that. It's an incredibly subjective mm. component. And as much as, as much as we try to make things as uh, quantitative as possible, a lot of medicine is qualitative. As I've always said, it's an imprecise, it, it's an art based on an imprecise science. And I think cosmetic practice, whether medicine or surgery, is the ultimate execution of that. Um, so I, I think word of mouth, fantastic. I think we all know reviews can be played around with. Um, as having said that, it it will give you nonetheless a direction. Um, you know, the wind's going to be blowing in a certain direction. And of course, the longer you've been in practice, the more issues you're going to have and complications that, that doesn't make you a bad surgeon. Quite the contrary. Yeah. Uh, if, if surgeons don't have complications, either they've they're being dishonest or they've not done enough cases. Yeah. It is part and parcel. It's integral to medicine. And I think this is my biggest grievance with the ambulance chasing lawyers. They don't understand it adequately. And all too often when they start, you know, uh, shooting in every direction, hospitals and so on, sometimes just settle because it is easier. But ultimately, it's a patient that loses out there yet again. So I think for some reason, we've approached a scenario where patients may be unreasonable, doctors may be unreasonable. Lawyers are clearly being unreasonable. And, um, you know, I, I, I think this is where the consultation must have a significant element of uh, addressing and discussing potential complications. Um, but, but, you know, one other thing I was thinking when Tim was talking, you know, the, the, all the different camps, or certainly the, the camp for ACCSM and RACs, they do get along. And in fact, they thrive in the absence of being on camera and in the absence of politics. And, you know, I think turf wars, for example, where there's commercial gain, and I can give you multiple examples around the country, you know, Queens, uh, Queensland, Perth, Melbourne, Sydney, where plastic surgeons and cosmetic surgeons work hand in hand. And in fact, a number of plastic surgeons are even pushing cosmetic surgeons where there is cosmetic or commercial gain or financial gain. But on camera, there's almost a disingenuous comment or commentary that's being pushed as well so it is such it's a minefield yeah and I, th I think it's i think it's fair to point out that there are good and bad surgeons on both sides of this debate i've seen as a lay person but i've been in the industry for 15 years i know what a good result looks which should look like and i know what a bad result looks like and i've seen horrendous examples from both plastics and cosmetics and great work by plastic and cosmetics i think it's it's difficult when you start treating people as a group rather than an individual um, and that's just not for this, it's for everything in life. When you start treating people as a collective rather than on their individual merits, that's when it starts to become unfair. And I, and I can't help but think, and this might be an unpopular opinion, uh, uh, Nero and Tim, is that some of this responsibility potentially needs to fall back on the patients. 
I think we live in a world of instant gratification. People have unrealistic expectations of themselves, of other people. They want everything yesterday. They're not prepared to do their homework. They're not prepared to educate themselves. I mean, we sit every day glued to these mobile devices that can tell us everything about the history of mankind since the dawn of time with the click of a button. And yet people will go and make decisions for themselves without doing proper homework and having unrealistic and not following post-care instructions, you know, having a liposuction procedure and then deciding to drive seven hours back to Queensland, you know, that night or the next day. I can't help but think um, that some of this, some of these issues need to be, um, I can't help but think that some patients are, 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 in, are contributing to the complications that they're getting. Would you, would you agree with that? Or do you think that's an unfair statement? I think that's a it's a very fair statement, and I, I think the difference between a a, um, a a good surgeon or a surgeon with uh, longevity in the industry and one who hasn't is that the longer you do it, the better you get at picking the ones who are potentially going to be non-compliant, yeah, um, and uh, and pick, backing the winners. It's like it's like. Um, you know, Melbourne Cup week, I think the longer you do it, the more likely you are to pick the winners. And uh, certainly my practice, the the longer I do it, the fewer operations I do and the more ones I turn down. Um, And I think most surgeons um, who get into their sort of 50s and um, 60s will, will, will have that experience as well. When, when you first start, you feel you need to take on everything and do everything and you make your mistakes. What would be really great is if, if there was a, um, a mentoring system within a regulatory framework which could shortcut that and that would be of benefit to the general public. Yeah. Mm. What, what did you think, Nero? So you think, I want your opinion on this as well. I was about to say, what you said is one of those mic drop statements. I think you are absolutely on point. Um, and I think also, as Tim suggested, the, the more experienced one becomes, the better one becomes at saying no, um, turning patients away, and actually even telling patients that as well. And as part of my mm. I tell patients, you have to like me, I have to like you, and both minds have to meet. You have to have confidence that I can do what I say, and I have to have confidence that you will do what you say. And if, for whatever reason, things don't work out as planned, we have to work hand in hand. Um, and, I, and, and I think experience certainly teaches you that but Tim that's not something one can learn in the operating theatre I think this is a big trick or a big point that is being missed that and, and that's one of the big di- distinguishing factors between you know reconstructive surgery and <clears throat> cosmetic cosmetic elective surgery is that there are it, it's a different set of soft skills and um and, and, I, and I think that is that cannot be underlined enough to be honest no, I'd agree with that, Nero. I, I mean, I, I 100% um, accept that. I, th- I think um, the consult, I've got a very a good friend who's a plastic surgeon here in Melbourne who said to me, he said, uh, good results are made in the consulting room. All you do in the operating theatre is make complications. And, and I think that's one of the truest statements about surgery that was ever made. Um, I mean, the other thing I say to people is that you, are, you have a vision in your head of your results. I have a vision in my head of the result I can give you. The surprise is not um, that um, that they sometimes are different. The surprise is that that more than often than not they're the same. Um, yeah. I think I think um, I think getting inside somebody's head is the key to good uh, cosmetic practice, uh, yeah. without a doubt. So yeah. yeah. 
It makes it difficult. I mean, I don't envy you guys. I mean, you know, you have great careers. I'm, I'm sure, you know, you're very successful in what you do, but I can't help but feel sorry for you in some respects because if you have an operation that goes well, you might get a thank you doc, a bunch of flowers and maybe an Instagram post with your, with your name tagged on it. And if it goes wrong, um, you know, your name is, is sort of mud, you know, you've got you're on bad, four corners, yeah, you're, on four corners. <laughs> you're getting bad reviews, you know, there's lawyers coming after you. I mean, it's, it's not, it's an, not an enviable position. I mean, I know everyone strives to be a doctor. Well, you know, I think a lot of people's <laughs> parents think they want them to be doctors, <laughs> depending on what ethnicity you come from. But certainly if you, if you're Jewish, it's, it's, uh, something that all parents would like you to be, but I think they're a doctor or a lawyer. Um, but I think it's, it's a tough road. You guys have a lot of, you know, daggers pointing in, in your direction if something goes wrong. And I don't envy you. So I, I feel it is a bit of a tough spot. And just to add, that's why I felt, you know, things like the TV show that we saw are so disingenuous. You know, you, you could wheel out any patient complication that be, could be completely legitimate and, and, and nothing was wrong with the surgery. And yet it's painted as like butchery and cowboyism. So yeah, I, yeah. Ju- I just find that kind of the, the, that part of the, the the program, I was like, "Oh, this is nonsense." Yeah, but I think I think that is a minority um, experience that people you have a complication, people have daggers at. I think part of part of a good consultation is saying, "Look, these things can happen," um, and the difference between a good surgeon and a bad surgeon is that a good surgeon knows how to get out of the problem hmm. or how to manage the individual. Mm-hmm. And that may that that's not necessarily a surgical solution, but it's it's a matter of managing a person through a difficult time of an adverse outcome. Yeah. Um, and and probably the majority of I, I know back in um, well I suppose it was in the nineteen ninety six um, when I was a registrar I did a, a a review from what was I think it was the Medical Defence Union it was called in those days Nero wasn't it. And I reviewed all medico-legal uh, complications against cosmetic surgery in the UK for 10 years and presented it at the, um, the UK aesthetic meeting. And something like 98% of them were due to communication failures. Mm. They weren't due to technical issues. They had a technical issue attached to them, but communication failure was regarded as the biggest issue. And similarly, that was that was actually reproduced in uh, Melbourne in um, 2015, and the paper was published in um, Journal of Aesthetic Plastic Reconstructive Surgery, the Obrich Journal of Plastic Surgery, and uh, and they found the same thing. They, 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 it's, it's about communication. It's not necessarily about uh, te- the way that things are done technically. Mm. Can, I, can I ask a question to you both? Maybe I'll address it to, to you, Nero, um, first. What you, you've sort of spoken about the importance of the consultation, and I couldn't agree with you more. Um, explaining to the patient who you are, your credentials, what you can achieve, making sure that you like the patient and you know they're going to be compliant and do what they need to do. But what training do you guys get, whether it be in plastics, which I'll get to you in a second, Tim, or for the moment, Nero, with the ACCS or through all of your surgical uh, training that you've had with the consultation process, those soft skills, do you learn that stuff? And if so, what does that look like? And if not, how could it be improved? In a nutshell, very little. I think some people are naturally more gifted at these things than others. I think some people care about these things more than others as well. But there is, I think, all around the world, there is a gross inadequacy in the consultation process. And Tim, you've probably heard the Royal Court of Surgeons of England, they're running a cosmetic surgery credentialing course open to everyone, irrespective of the uh, core specialty. So Uh, you know, general surgery, et cetera, et cetera. And I attended that a few years ago, and they told me something quite 
uh, they, they had a couple of uh, people from one of the uh, medical defense organizations, and they gave a very interesting statistic. And that was that 50% of patients decide to sue their surgeon during the first consultation, irrespective of the actual surgical outcome. Wow. And that is a sobering statistic. Wow. And, and I think those who are less, how can I put it, less slick and fluid with thinking on their feet, with also saying no, and perhaps even telling the patient that the tail never wags the dog, the dog wags the tail. <laughs> Those who fail to do that run the risk of falling in that 50% who will get some adverse experience at the end of that surgical journey, even if you've done the right thing, and even in the absence of some kind of complication or expectation delivery mismatch. Um, so, yeah, th there is definitely a gross deficit um, I think, but as with most things, you know, some people are just better at some things than others. Yeah. And I think one of the things is, well, being around the right people, attending more courses, you know, even surgeons attending cosmetic medical courses, you learn a lot about patient appraisal, about the, the interactive process. And I think all of it really adds up. It's, you know, the sum of the parts is worth more than the individual components. Yeah. I, I kind of agree with that. I, I think um, nobody taught me a consultation technique or a style. I think you pick up gems from different people, both in the way that you want to do it, but also the way you don't want to do it. Um, and I think through that and your your natural, you're a natural either an empath or you're not an empath. Um, I think people who undertake cosmetic work need to have a quite a high degree of empathy uh, compared to other things. I'm not suggesting that. Um, other surgeons don't, but I, I think there's a certain type of sensitivity and the ability to listen rather than to talk is extremely important. Um, and uh, one of the most one of the most important things I think really to do is, is sometimes just shut your mouth and nod your head and yeah. uh, and and listen and smile and let people get things off their chest because. Um, Often, if you do that, even if the information you impart in the consult hasn't necessarily been uh, informative for them in terms of their journey, they'll come out thinking it was a good experience. Yeah. So even if you're saying no, it's about the way that you say no. Yeah. And you were uh, great points, guys. I couldn't agree with you more. And, and again, and I've said this before on previous podcasts, and I think that in some ways it, it, it's it, you've highlighted why this consultation process is as important, like these human, these soft skills, the ability to, to consult and, and convey information and listen is equally as important as your surgical skill. And I, and I kind of feel sorry for doctors a little bit because medicine is an analytical pursuit to a large extent. I mean, it's very technical, technical based. And I, I, and I feel that a lot of doctors are not naturally blessed with those soft skills. Generally speaking, I'm stereotyping. I know that there are others that are, and they're, they're the ones that probably end up being some of the most successful, particularly in this in this in this um, industry. Because, if, as you said, gift of gab, being able to have people like you and, and explain things and be articulate is super super important. So, I, I kind of feel again feel sorry for for a lot of surgeons who potentially weren't naturally blessed or weren't taught how important those soft skills are. Would you? Would you? What do you think, Nero? <laughs> Once again, absolutely on point. Um, but it's it's a tough gig. But, you know, arguably, and, and Tim, I'm sure you would agree, and J Jake, you will have experience too, sometimes we select our specialty based on our skill set. So yeah. as everything in life, 
awareness, awareness of oneself is critical to success. Whatever you do, whether you're a house builder or you know, a surgeon or a mechanic or whatever, if you understand yourself, and of course, the older we get, the better we do understand ourselves. But um, I, I think having a little bit of insight from the outset is a very critical, uh, critical thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Jake, you and I have spoken about this. And, you know, we've had Dr. Shahidi on here and, and one of the clinical psychologists that he works with, Dr. Shabmar Iskandari. I mean, it's getting to a point now where a lot of doctors, particularly specialist surgeons, mm. um, especially with things like rhinos that are like one millimetre can mean the difference between disaster and, and, and celebration, yeah. um, is weeding out those people who potentially have unrealistic expectations, potentially have body dysmorphia, potentially have got personality types that just aren't good at absorbing information or not going to listen. Yeah. And I'm sure you're experiencing that too as well from an injectables perspective. Oh, 100%. And, and this conversation is completely transferable to yeah. the injectable world. You know, every course that, that I've seen for injectors focuses on the skill. You know, we're going to learn tier troughs today. Yeah. And the why is never there. It's always the how. And so, you know, you get injectors with all this skill, but they don't know how to transfer it or how to talk to people or how to consult or how to say no. Um, or how to set realistic expectations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, it's it's no surprise when 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 sort of injectors sort of get complications of verticomers. It might not be a complication. It's just the patient doesn't understand the process. I mean, a bruise from sticking a needle in someone's <laughs> face. Well, why yeah. did that happen? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. But no, I, I think the, the argument is the same for injectables. Um, I wanted to go back to social media because that, that's an interesting one. And, mm. you know, again, some of these big um, accounts, uh, both plastics and cosmetics, you know, they're, they're, they're quite interesting. Um, you know, sometimes you could argue it's trivialized. And I remember just a week ago, I saw um, our friend Dr. Cara McDonald, she's yes. a derm down in Melbourne. As a sort of a, just a commentary after what we saw on TV, she actually um, brought up on, in an Instagram live, it was like a monologue, she was just talking to herself and, and to people watching, that she felt that things like before and afters and, and I guess particularly live surgery, she, she felt that there's a sort of a barrier that you're breaching with your patient that it's sort of stepping out, you know, the, the patient sort of saying yes, but they don't necessarily know what it means. Right. They don't fully understand. For example, you know, once you're on a GA, what does that mean? If suddenly the surgeons, they're either just talking or dancing or whatever, but you've said, yes, I'm happy to be on camera. It, 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 it it's a bit of a slippery slope. And, and I think it needs to be d defined better as what, what are the, what is the patient signing up for? Yeah. Um, what do you guys think? Because I, I, I believe you've both got pretty conservative social media accounts. But um, what's your take on, you know, some of these bigger accounts? You know, some of these surgeons have got millions of followers, literally, on TikTok at least, and Instagram, hundreds of thousands yeah. of followers. So clearly the public is resonating with it and, and there is definitely an educational component. But... Where, where does the boundary stop where it goes from educational to trivialising and perhaps um, taking advantage of patients? So we'll start with Tim. Um, as you say, I've got my, my sort of social media profile is pretty much nil. Um, <laughs> You've got I a few posts, to, I've seen them. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, my, my, my partner does those. But I mean, I essentially use uh, the only social media I, interaction I really have is looking at golden retrievers on TikTok. Um, <laughs> Um, I love golden retrievers. We've and, all got our and, fetishes, uh, Tim. It's okay. <laughs> and and trying and trying to do one of those funny little dances. But other than that, um, my my view of it is, 
um, it's a changing world, and I feel a lot of it's passed me by. Yeah. And certainly from a social media perspective, I can't get my head around it at all. Yeah. I can understand a transfer of information, but living within that world and and um, promoting myself as almost like a virtual human being, I, I just I just can't get my head around it at all. So sorry. Yeah. I mean, you know, the the the, the pro social media people will, will say it's free advertising. You're not paying anything and you're constantly there. You can say what you like. You can showcase all the good stuff and none of the bad stuff. <laughs> and uh, that, that, that's, you know, a channel that's hugely valuable. I mean, take it back it's, 15 it's years. Valuable, it's valuable to them, but I mean, is it valuable to Well, to I'm just talking about a business, not even a surgeon, yeah. just a business. Yeah. You know, yeah. back in, in 20 years ago, my, you know, someone who owned a business would have to be in, in the UK. We had the Yellow Pages, you know, like a, like a, a stupid book where you're either sort of got a little advert in there under, you know, builders or, or you wouldn't ever be found. So this is like the modern Yellow Pages almost. Yeah, but but it's different, obviously. What do you think, Nira? I've got my opinions, but I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Interesting. I spoke to two of the uh, journalists who were involved with some of the um, media. Uh, well, for example, the Four Corners program and some of the newspaper articles that have come out over the last two weeks, and they're very much aware about a lot of these large social media accounts having purchased followers. Yeah. yeah. They're even aware about people going from 2,000 to suddenly 20 to 200,000. Yeah. So, again, you, you know, and you see people clowning around wearing wigs, dancing, mm-hmm. et cetera, with patients. And many of, you know, all too often patients are, you could argue, you know, part of that and enjoying it. But there is another side to it as well. Are they feeling somewhat coerced into it? And do they know what they're going to be doing suddenly when the camera is pointing on them? Yeah. I don't know. My approach, perhaps I'm a, an older soul in a younger body, but I'm, I'm with Tim on this. I keep my personal social media very, you know, down the central line. It's just about me giving lectures or talks or whatever it is about teaching, etc. The clinic social media just shows befores and afters. There's no clowning around. And yeah. I personally think, and of course, everyone's got a different brand and a different way of executing that brand. But for what I would like to push, that is very, you know, concordant with my values and my approach. Yeah. I'm suddenly feeling very vulnerable. Tim Tim added me as a follower the other day, and, and he's probably going to unfollow me after watching my, what I put on mine. <laughs> Again, that was my partner who did that. Gabrielle did that. I, 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 don't, I don't even, I'm not even allowed to log on to uh, the social media account. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, all fair game if people want to do it, but uh, imagine how much of a happier place it would be if people undertaking surgery weren't allowed to have professional social media accounts. Yeah. Just imagine that and what, how much angst and problems that would solve in one hit. I, I, I do agree with that. And, and if you had a blanket rule that we just can't do it, then sure, there's a level playing field and everyone knows what they're doing. But I'm sure that patients are more educated, even if they don't know everything, by having access to some of this stuff rather than not. Mm. And it, it and this goes for, you know, we've spoken about this a hundred times, David, where, you know, we're not allowed to use, you know, uh, prescription drug names in, in our advertising or social media, et cetera. And yet to me, that is driving the confusion that patients have. Whereas if we had an open conversation, yeah. then great. Everyone yeah. would know what we're talking about and ask for the yeah, right things. It's like I did 
300, I did a hundred units of something that starts with the letter B, but I can't say what it is, but you know, everyone knows what I'm talking about. It's like, what, what are we doing here? We're playing charades. Like everyone knows what the hell you're talking about. Just give people specifics so they can educate themselves. It just seems weird. Yeah. But, but I agree with, you know, what you said, Nero, it, it, is it right that, you know, you've got your, your patients dancing around in G strings with emojis on their nipples. That seems weird to me. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Now we know what you do on Saturday. <laughs> no, but you see it. You don't even look for it. That, that's the point. You know, and children can see this stuff. That, that yeah. is the point. I think it's like sometimes as humans, we, we have to go too far before we realise we've gone too far and then correct. And I feel that's where we are. We've gone from no social media to like, yay, it's social. Everything's up, putting everything up, photos of what I'm doing every minute of every day. And then I think people are going to realise maybe I've shared a little bit too much. Maybe we need to just pull back, pull back a little bit. Um, Talking about the uh, the sort of the four corners story, and I don't want to get into a situation, you know, about going into specifics or talking about a, a person and bad mouthing them, but I do want to just talk about some of the issues and what you guys, I guess, perceive as issues. And I know that there was a lot of um, sensational sensationalism in terms of patients and their horror stories, and I think it's worth just pointing out this man has been operating for thirty years, and I'm not I'm not defending him. I'm just putting things in perspective that he's been operating for thirty years. And I was saying to you, Tim, before we hopped on the air, you could he could have a complication rate of less than one percent or half a percent. And if you've yeah. been operating for thirty years and you were to then go on a hunt to try and find someone unhappy, I would I would say I would hazard a guess. I'd even put money on it that any surgeon in Australia who's been operating for any significant period of time could have dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of patients who hate their guts, who got a bad surgical outcome, who'd make great TV um, uh, uh, material. Um, and I do think that is a little bit unfair. Um, mm. But were there things in, in, that, in that story that did concern you, perhaps like, you know, fat being stored in fridges, telling patients not to go to a public hospital if they have a concern, never telling a patient to admit fault or that there's an issue. I mean, those are the things for me as a lay person who understands the industry to a certain extent that were concerning more so than the sensationalised patient stories about bad outcomes. Yeah. I think there's two points there. The first thing, I, I didn't see the programme. As I said to you earlier, it's, it was on way past my bedtime, so I, <laughs> I didn't stay up and see it. Um, I think your first point is, is a very important one in the sense that uh, you, you have to know where people's outcomes fall on us on the spectrum of what is acceptable um and if 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 people's outcomes are better than uh what's sort of generally acceptable and generally published well all power to them you may not enjoy the optics of what they do um but if they're not causing any significant harm or less harm even than the average surgeon i don't see how you can criticize them except on uh from a point of view of taste um with regard to those other issues, uh, um, it sounds like they were clinic regulation issues. I didn't see it, so I can't really comment on it. What about yeah. you, Nero? Did you see it? Um, I, I did see it, um, and I have uh, discussed it at length with a number of people who are involved in that, you know, in that particular scenario. But uh, I've got two things that come to mind. Firstly, there were some allegations on there that one cannot condone such as the fact if it's true, et cetera, et cetera. So can we just explain it for people who didn't see it, just just preface what, what was seen? Jake, can I get you to do that? Oh, sure. I, well, oh, I can. Well, I'm, the, I'm the non-doctor please here. Go so. for it. Um, yeah, so basically they showed footage of – so this particular uh, surgeon um, – was doing liposuction procedures and he was harvesting fat during those liposuction procedures. And I, and I'd say he was 
storing it for later use, perhaps to correct um, over resection or, or, you know, taking out too much of an area. You might have some crepey skin. Lipo, look, look, to put it out there, again, I'm not a doctor, but I have seen enough liposuction procedures over the years to know that it's not an exact science. Um, sometimes it's very difficult to know during the operating um, in the operating procedure itself to know whether you've taken too much sometimes because as soon as you start traumatising an area, it swells, plus you've got tumescent and anaesthesia in that area. So sometimes you don't actually know what your final result's going to be until the swelling's gone down, which may not be for weeks, if not months later. So I, I, I dare say he was collecting fat during the liposuction process and storing it um, in what looked like or allegedly looked like, you know, unsatisfactory storage conditions. And then I would just, I was wondering what would be the purpose of storing it when we know that, you know, things like cool sculpting and cryolipolysis where freezing kills fat cells. I, I was struggling to understand what the benefit of that would be, but that was the, what was depicted was fat being stored um, from patients for later use in fridges. It looked like they were just domestic fridges. And then there was also the allegation of patient, sorry, staff being encouraged to take fat home so that it wouldn't be spotted during regulatory audits. Was, would that be a fair assessment, everyone? <laughs> yeah, well, and, and I think my immediate impression was, well, you've got tens or hundreds of tubes just with a name on it with a post-it note and, you know, in a in a common fridge with drinking water. That That was what scared me it wasn't that he's storing fat i mean you could do that in a yeah. you know a, in a regulated way and that's probably normal i don't yeah. know i'm not in a cosmetic theater myself but it was the sterility and and what you said about you know staff being encouraged to take it home to hide it from the regulators david what you said was absolutely you know it shows competence and insight and jake has further extended that but there are two things perhaps i if i can again just Devil's advocate, or throw a different perspective in here. Um, where, where Jake initially said, where patients were advised not to go to emergency or um, you know, not to accept blame, etc. Could it be that the politics within the arena is now detrimental to patients because uh, the practitioners in question might have been thinking, well, if the patient rocks up to a public facility? There's going to be someone there with an agenda and an unreasonable bone to pick who's then going to kick off, which will mm. then undo so much of the good work that we have done as a group or whatever. And therefore, you could argue that the unfairness of the playing field, uh, for example, some groups can admit patients and they can, of course, modulate one's thoughts and they can bias patients, et cetera, et cetera. Perhaps it's the playing field that's also making some people do things that they know is unethical, but they're doing it in a existential or survivalist kind of mode. I actually, uh, sorry, just to add, I, I took that statement sort of literally and I thought, well, yeah, as an injector, if my patient has a, a serious complication, the last place I want them to go is a public hospital where no one's an injector and, and same for, you know, the cosmetic surgeons. No one in theatre, sorry, an ED is a cosmetic surgeon. So these patients can be mismanaged. So I actually took that statement sort of fairly, you know, I, I thought that was a reasonable yeah. statement taken in that context. But I can imagine it'd be quite shocking for someone that doesn't have that understanding of the nuances of this particular industry could take that as, oh my God, he's hiding. why me. would you tell someone not to go to a hospital if they're sick? That's, yeah. that's you know, that's well, that monstrous. The, well, that was the editing of the yeah. TV and I don't know which way that conversation actually lied, but it mm. was painted that he was hiding, you know, complications, I guess. I mean, there's always going to be emotional hyperbole, both from the media and from you know, some arms of the legal profession as well. But yeah, Tim, yeah. 
Um, I, I just feel that, again, the disharmony that we've spoken about all the way through this podcast is ultimately causing issues. And I think really the different, the two main craft groups, the time is is very appropriate for them to come together at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I mean, I, I, what I would say to people is what harm can it do? Coming together and talking about these things and trying to get a resolution. If what you really care about is patient safety and surgical standards, what harm does it do to bring all the stakeholders together and have a start a discussion about standards and regulation and how things could move forward? Yeah. Because by, by doing that, even doing it, the optics, the optics look good. It looks good to the general public that everyone's trying to do it. You might actually learn something from each other. Um, yeah. And rather than just being entrenched in your position. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't, I honestly don't see what harm it could do by actually opening up a dialogue between craft groups. Yeah. Well, um, couldn't agree with you more. And you seem like you could be in the perfect position, Tim, being a plastic surgeon um, and also working with the ACCS. And it seems like you've got a fairly um, sensible view on things and you can see things from both both perspectives. How do we actually fix this. We've spoken to lots of plastic surgeons on here. Um, we had a really good in-depth chat with Dr. Tavakoli, who's, I guess, a fairly well-known doctor here, cosmetic surgeon here, or plastic and cosmetic. Was he plastic and cosmetic or plastic cosmetic? He's a plastic surgeon who does a lot of cosmetic procedures. And, you know, he was talking about, you know, how do we fix this? How do we fix this issue so that we can restore harmony to our industry because I think, and again, I've spoken about this, uh, you know, ad nauseum on this podcast is that whenever there's a negative story on the media, even if you've got plastic surgeons on one side saying, this is terrible, this is bad, this is horrendous, patients just, the message that patients take home is cosmetic surgery is dangerous. It is bad. And I think that it does terrible things to our entire industry. And I think that if we don't take it upon ourselves as an industry to fix our internal issues we're going to get regulated and it might not be, we might not get what we wish for. It might be a complete overreach, which the government tends to do when they come in and regulate things when enough noise is made. And we might all be really unhappy with the outcome. I mean, it could all backfire on, on the plastic surgeons. For, for all we know, governments do weird things, right? Who knows what's going to happen? So how do we fix this problem? How do we come together as an industry and go, right, we've got good and bad people on both sides of the equation. We realise there needs to be standardised, recognised training program for this emerging subspecialty as, it is, as, it, as, you, as you could define it. Um, and that's fair. I mean, you've got orthopaedic surgeons now that just do shoulders or just do knees. I mean, everything is becoming, even specialties are becoming subspecialised. So I'm interested to know from both of you, if you had a magic wand and you were Harry Potter for a day, how would you, how would you fix this? How do we go about repairing this, this rift that continues to, to grow larger and larger, larger between these two groups of doctors? David, can I throw something in your direction before uh, uh, Tim and I answer that question? What would you do in a situation where you've got two well, you've got a doctor who's not part of ACCSM, not part of RACS, but um, this doctor is supported by two plastic surgeons. They even push literature where they've got this guy's face and name and they've called him, you know, said that he's part of the Australasian Society of Plastic Surgeons. And they're massively supporting him entirely for commercial gain. But on social media channels, they also throw stones at ACCSM. 
Um, so you've got someone who's completely not part of it, who's grossly enabled and even lying and openly lying. Um, and then the people who are facilitating this are kind of getting away with uh, murder in broad daylight. Well, I, I think that's a problem with medicine as a whole. It doesn't matter what specialty. Um, you know, uh, when when we were planning this podcast, Tim and I were sort of talking about my time in the UK, and and in fact, the first podcast we've had three Englishmen and one one Aussie. <laughs> that numbered, yeah. yeah. So so we will all and three surgeons. So we'll all sort of understand. You know the old fashioned old boys club sort of um, attitude to surgery and sexism and bullying and, and the lack of whistleblowing and all the rest of it. So this is a problem with medicine as a whole. It's not just, you know, what we're talking about tonight, but um, it seems to be sort of hyper um, aggressive when it comes to this because there's commercial well, so much money and there's well. so much money involved. This is a highly lucrative industry. I mean, you know, it's, I don't know. I'd say that well, surgeons are the highest paid um, specialty of doctors in the world, as far as I'm aware of, and, and cosmetic just seems to be growing exponentially year on year on year. So, I mean, when you're talking these large quantums of money, it can bring out, you know, agendas, certain parts of people's personalities, and so on. So, yeah. sorry to answer your question, Nero. What would I do? Is that is that what you're asking? What would I do in this situation? Yeah. So, so essentially, what I'm getting at is, you know, you've got people who are claiming to be holier than thou, whilst at the same time commercially and financially gaining by pushing people or pr propagating people that, you know, they should not be doing mm. um, while throwing stones at another group altogether. So there mm. seems to be a very fundamental problem here. And I, I, it's, a, it's such a tough, tough one. Um, and this is where I, I, I just feel that perhaps a regulator, yes, you know, there, there is, is, there's no real remit over cosmetic surgery, but there is a remit over good and ethical practice. And I think that the regulator is 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 failing somewhat, to be honest. Do, do you think the regulator could could literally just say, uh, "I'm sorry, enough of this"? Uh, ACCSM and uh, ASAPS, which is the the Plastic Surgical Society or the main one, you just have to sit down around a table. We're going to force you and come up with something sensible. You, you don't have a choice. You just have to do it. Yeah. Could, that, could that happen or or not? I think it could happen, and there are a number of senators that feel that as well. I think Tim would be best placed to answer the feasibility of that. Well, there was um, a senatorial, the senatorial inquiry that's uh, going on at the moment. They're due to report on the 24th of November, is my understanding. Um, and uh, it was put to them by um, the College of Cosmetic Surgery and Medicine that uh, we should all sit down around the table and um, and try and set up a register of people who are, who are um, able to do cosmetic surgery. I think it requires some form of, of non-involved um, third-party arbitration. Yeah. Um, it's called Inside Aesthetics Podcast. We'll, we'll be there. We'll, <laughs> we'll record yeah, everything. Yeah, so just like we had in... Like we had in the UK in the 1970s, it was it was called ACAS, wasn't it? Where the miners used to sit down with the government and they used to <laughs> they used to thrash out uh, thrash out a solution where yeah. they both looked like they'd won and actually produced a result. Yeah. And, I, and I think that's what needs to happen. There's there's some big egos involved here. Um, there's some big sums of money and there's some big turf wars and on both sides. And there's some shonky practice and there's some excellent practice. And everybody. Everybody needs to kind of calm down, you know? If the plastics were 
right or whoever's shouting that, you know, cosmetic surgeons or, or some of them, you know, are, are sort of cowboys or whatever they call them. Surely if, if there was a formal regulatory process, these people would be weeded out. So you would have thought that they would be for this, not against this. It shows the, in my opinion, the disingen- disingenuous sort of motivation. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I can't see what, I can't see what people lose by engaging in trying to develop a regulatory process. I, I I honestly cannot see what people lose other than they're worried about their own current position. Yeah. But if you're engaged in developing the process, you're more likely to be able to direct it than if you're not engaged in it. And it's in, and as you said, it's foisted upon you, which I think yeah. is, is, is the worst situation for everybody. I feel that um, sometimes you need to just, there's some people that you can't change their mind. They become so emotionally invested in their opinion that they cannot be shifted from that perspective. And perhaps perhaps it would be prudent to focus energies on people that are newer to the industry, people that are new to the craft, whether they be plastics or cosmetics, and trying to indoctrinate them in sensible thought and balanced views and fairness and calling out the shit practices on both sides wherever they occur for the betterment of the industry. And sometimes it's, sometimes you can't just, you can't flog a dead horse anymore. If people are unwilling to listen, then perhaps they just need to be ignored and focus energies on the people that are new, that are coming into this industry, that have more open mind about things and starting to build a movement from underneath the rubble that currently exists in in our, in our industry. I mean, that sounds so beautiful and and perfect. Yes. The problem is that the power masters are the people at the top of the pecking order. Mm. And like we said, it's a boys club or a, yeah, but they won't live forever. No, they won't. (laughs) But, um, you know, that, that, that's the problem with medicine. I I think it's always been that way. And, and seemingly it still is. Again, another, just another comment. I think I made to you before we, we had this, podcast jake was you know it's it's the patients who choose the doctors not the other doctors um so i I think to a certain degree if you disactively what it how's it gwyneth paltrow put it um consciously uncoupled um with the sort of the bullshit and everything that's going on about it and try and build those bridges on an individual basis um that's a good start and hopefully if enough people are trying to do that between the various craft groups, um, eventually there's some sort of consensus will develop. Um, I mean, yeah. I, I'm, as I said to you, I'm happy to talk to anybody who's involved with the cosmetic surgery industry and engage with them and talk to them. Um, I'm not there to judge them. I'm not there. That's not my job. I'm not, I, but I, I don't, what harm does it do by actually talking yeah. and discussing things with people? Well, before, before sort of COVID kicked off, we were in the midst of organising a plastic and cosmetic surgeon panel. We were going to have mm. both sides of the aisle, so to speak, um, coming together to talk about what were their issues on both sides and how we potentially could start mending that bridge. And then COVID came and that all sort of got uh, got scuttled by all of that. But, I mean, that's something that we would like to do as, as a podcast. You know, Jake and I have, in the industry, we've come from different backgrounds. We've built up a, a fairly significant uh, sort of listener base now, and we feel it's incumbent upon us as some sort of voice in the industry to try and see whether we can act as intermediaries to a certain point to try and get people talking and talk about the real issues and how we can potentially move forward together. So I would love to do that. Maybe we'll have you guys back on to have 
you know, that discussion be part of that because I think this is just part one of a much greater piece that needs to be discussed because someone needs to take responsibility for what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you are a plastic or a cosmetic, please reach out to us, even if it's, you know, behind the scenes and DM us or um, you can get our number quite easily. And, you know, we can facilitate that. So who knows what may happen in the future? I think it would be great um, if people have got a negative view to ask the question, what harm does it do to engage in a conversation? You know, and uh, if they can give a good answer, please pass it on. I'd be interested to know. <laughs> well, I think uh, we've sort yeah. of come to a nice, uh, sort of reasonable um, conclusion. Well, Tim's got to get sorts. to bed. He's, he's two hours late, mate. He's, he's, <laughs> I'm well past my bedtime. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry to keep you up, Tim. But thank you both for your time. And, and Tim, it's been great to, to meet you properly. And probably yeah. the most perfect person for this particular podcast because you do you know, you've seen both sides of the camp as it were. Um, and Nero, you know, thank you for the introduction and thanks for coming back for your second podcast as well. So, um, we'll obviously put your details at the bottom of the podcast description. If any of the listeners want to reach out, you you might get some followers. Who knows? Maybe we'll build up those Instagram accounts, guys. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Thank thank you, Nero. Thank you, Tim. Good to have you back, Nero. Always, always, um, pleased to hear your insights and all of your experience as you've traveled a lot of the world and seen a lot of different things so thank you for your time i know you're a busy man thank you tim nice to meet you um nice we'll, let to you meet go- you all. We'll, we'll let you go to bed looking forward to actually uh, continuing this discussion at a later point sorry Neil, did you want to say something i was going to say jake david and tim thank you for facilitating this i think it's uh, wonderfully constructive and i do hope that those who are listening use it in a very positive way Uh, whether that's the media, the regulatory board, whatever it may be. But I think well done and thank you again. Thank you, guys. Enjoy and stay safe. Thanks, guys. Take care. See you, guys. Bye. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Using the link in our Instagram profile, you can easily email us, text us, apply to be a guest on the show, follow our personal accounts on Instagram, and even show your love and support us on Patreon. 